The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Do you read me, Hal? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. <laughs> that's the villainous supercomputer, Hal 9000. In Stanley Kubrick's classic 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. We're looking at bad guys today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Hello there. Welcome to the show. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. I'm a good guy, I hope. I'm wearing the white hat, or I try to. I'm just doing my best, people. This is a fun topic today. What makes a good literary villain? Is it his or her creepy physical appearance? A willingness to commit atrocious crimes? Does the villain need a good motive, a good backstory, or can they just be plain evil for evil's sake? Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, is joining us to help us figure it all out and to select our top 10 literary villains. And you know, this is the part of the show where we usually have an interruption by some poor literary creature who knocks on the studio door, but I don't think that's really appropriate for this particular show. Why would I have Elizabeth Bennet here or Oliver Twist? They're good guys, heroes. I'm trying to protect them from all these bad guys. Oh no, someone must not have, not have gotten a memo. Hello, it's me, Lady Macbeth. Lady I'm Macbeth. here to ask you, now, now stop. Sorry, that's my dog, Spot. His favorite dog walker hasn't shown up yet, and he's refusing to... Out! Out, you damn Spot! He's simply refusing to leave the castle without his favorite dog walker. <laughs> what happened to the dog walker? Funny story, actually. I had my husband kill him. I can't remember why. Something about a dagger. Anyway, our desperate and sweaty minion, Jack Wilson, is going to procure a new dog walker. But he... Spot! If you don't get out now, I shall kick thee all the way to Dunsinane Hill. You know I would. You know I would to Dunsinane. Ahem. Won't you help Mr. Wilson secure a few funds? Spot and I shall be ever so grateful. Oh, there we go. Lady Macbeth, well, I guess she belongs. What a great villain. Will she make our top ten? We will see. Her poor dog, Spot. Damn Spot ordered to go out. 
There are at least three little puns in that promotion, which seems very fitting, as Shakespeare never met a pun he didn't like. Sometimes when I read Shakespeare, I think, oh, too many puns, Mr. Shakespeare. And then I read Dr. Johnson's prefaces to Shakespeare, and I was delighted to discover that Dr. Johnson, that wonderful literary career, <laughs> literary critic, my 18th century hero, felt the same way. That was good. <laughs> That was good to be confirmed by Dr. Johnson. He called puns quibbles. And here I'm going to read a passage from Dr. Johnson, but let's replace the word quibble with pun, because I think quibble is a little bit distracting. So I'm going to replace quibble with pun, and let's hear what Johnson had to say. Quote, A pun is to Shakespeare what luminous vapors are to the traveler. He follows it at all adventures. It is sure to lead him out of his way, and sure to engulf him in the mire. It has some malignant power over his mind, and its fascinations are irresistible. Whatever be the dignity or profundity of his disquisition, whether he be enlarging knowledge or exalting affection, whether he be amusing attention with incidents or enchaining it in suspense, let but a pun spring up before him, and he leaves his work unfinished. A pun is the golden apple for which Shakespeare will always turn aside from his career or stoop from his elevation. A pun, poor and barren as it is, gave him such delight that he was content to purchase it by the sacrifice of reason, propriety, and truth." A pun was to Shakespeare the fatal Cleopatra for which he lost the world and was content to lose it. End quote. How great is that? Puns were so diverting, so distracting, and yet so enchanting. Shakespeare, in his mind, couldn't resist them. It is perhaps his greatest flaw, his single weakness. And like our Philosophers of tragedy pointed out long ago, his weakness is born out of his strength. Shakespeare's wordplay, his mind, his vocabulary, his ability to, to pull words, invent words from thin air, that's all part of his genius. And yet, in the form of excessive puns, also part of his weakness. <laughs> Where do I fit in? Listen to that criticism in Johnson, those beautiful phrases. Let a, let a pun spring up before him and he leaves his work unfinished. It was to him the fatal Cleopatra for which he lost the world and was content to lose it. And here's me. Huh. A lot of puns. <laughs> Maybe too many. <laughs> Johnson makes me feel like Frankenstein's monster. The one in the movies, not the eloquent fellow in Mary Shelley's book. So many puns. Right? You ever feel that way? Here's Johnson. Quote, A pun, poor and barren as it is, gave him such delight that he was content to purchase it by the sacrifice of reason, propriety, and truth. End quote. And here's Jack Wilson. I'll give you a glimpse into Jack Wilson's mind. Quote, so many puns. 
Maybe too many. I don't know. End quote. Anyway, if you'd like to contribute to the show, and why would you? <laughs> why would you? Why would you? When I just revealed my inner voice is basically Boris Karloff handed the collected works of William Shakespeare. Why would you contribute to the show? Unless maybe you feel sorry for me. Is that what my patrons have been doing? Hoping I'll be able to afford some education? Well, thank you anyway. All you people who have taken me on as your project. And if you'd like to join the club with a, with a, what's a good drink? Usually it's coffee. Sometimes we say, buy me a beer. But for Dante, we had a glass of wine. Today we have villains. What do bad guys drink? What do you think? A shot of something? Tequila? Whiskey? Fireball? Actually, you know what most bad guys drink in movies? The number one beverage for bad guys in movies? Milk. Yes, it's milk. So if you'd like to buy me a glass of milk or a coffee or a beer, whatever you'd like, you can head on over to patreon.com literature and sign up to contribute to the show in whatever amount you'd like using a credit card or a PayPal account. Or if you're more of a one-time donation kind of person, you can find a link for that. It's called a virtual coffee at historyofliterature.com shop. This week... We're thanking new patrons and supporters Justine, Zachary, Alice, and Marty. Marty emailed to let me know he's a fan of our Julius Caesar episode, and as it happens, he's written a contemporary play that sounds an awful lot like our Shakespearean version. Updated, it's called Trumpilius J. Caesar. It's available for free download at Smashwords. You can check that out. Okay, let's get to our villains. Mike Palindrome, coming up. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me once again for a look at literary villains is our old friend Mike Palindrome. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Hey, Jack. 
So we're going to be looking at literary villains, and I this time we're going to do a draft of, of the top 10. This time I didn't rank them. I actually have my list chronological because I was associating villains with the time period that they were coming out of, which was sort of an interesting look at them. We'll get into that. But first, I wanted to mention, I read a book by uh, Chuck Klosterman Mm -hmm. called I Wear the Black Hat. And he talks about villains just in popular culture and in the imagination. And he had this interesting theory where he said, boys who watch Star Wars, the first Star Wars, the, I mean, the first one that came out. Right. Boys who watch it tend to like Luke Skywalker. And then teenagers like Han Solo. But mm. adults like Darth Vader because they find <laughs> him the most interesting and they wonder about his backstory and what made him evil and and would I ever be as evil as Darth Vader and that kind of thing. And I actually disagreed with this theory. I was kind of with him at first because I did like Luke Skywalker when I was seven or eight years old. And then now Han Solo is my favorite character. And I I could see where you want to uh, you want the hero or you want the person that you're most interested in to have a little bit of an edge or a little bit of a uh, an ability to, to cross some lines. But I actually found mm-hmm. that to be a little more interesting than Darth Vader. I identified with Han Solo. Yeah, I, but I will say that his theory within that theory is something I felt, which is a really good villain is more important than a really good hero for driving the story forward. Yeah, whether it's film yeah. or a book. Yep. Um, and I mean, Darth Vader is unforgettable. That's true. That's true. And it's almost like Han Solo plus Luke yep. equals Darth Vader. Yeah. I agree with you that they are essential for the story and they can really make a story go wrong. I mean, you could have a lot of different kinds of heroes. They're almost always likable, I think maybe because we want to like them, but if you get the if you get the villain wrong, uh it can just destroy your what you're trying to do. If you if you're trying to make a villain very scary and instead he's comic, it's death for the story. Yeah, I mean, I in, in picking the picks for t- today's draft of literary villains, I wanted to pick ones that I personally had found just frightening, yeah. and they, the, and they, they were generally um, evil that could was harder to understand. Mm-hmm. I feel sort of sorry for authors who are trying to create villains because I think we tend to just in the age we're in, we tend to shy away from. Uh, over-the-top villains or pure evil villains. We try to complicate things or see the the good in every bad person or the bad in every good person. And just that seems more, that seems truer to life. But mm-hmm. I have a friend who submitted his novel and he got a, a comment back from the editor who said, we need to make the bad guy less cartoony. <laughs> and... It was it was a hard note for him to take and to adopt because, you know, we we just don't we don't believe in evil the way that maybe we once did, and yet we're surrounded by it in life. But there's something about putting it into a novel and having it be a real full character that 
uh, I think can be just kind of a hard, it's, it seems like it's much easier to do it in a film than in a novel. Yeah. I think cause in, in a film, the, the, in a, in a novel, there's only so many times you can describe them, but in a film they can just, you know, walk around and you don't have to describe them again. Yeah. Um, and someone like, um, I was thinking of the dark night, uh, mm. with Bane and how there's a scene where he is talking to a corrupt politician he's been helping. And the politician is upset at the way Bane is conducting, um, the plan. And the politician says something like, cause I'm in charge. And Bane puts his hand on his sh- neck. No, he puts the palm of his hand by the side of his neck and says, do you feel like you're in charge? Hmm. And the camera pans to the, the neck, the hand on the neck. And it's not around his neck, like a menacing, it's just like a gentle hand, but Hmm. it's obviously not. And I was thinking in, in a, in a book, it would be so hard to describe that at the pace of the dialogue saying, do you think you're in charge? Yeah. Do you feel like you're in charge? So that's something that film has an advantage over uh, uh, yeah. novels that they can change change up the pace in a in a way that a novel can't as as well. They have so as easily. many, yeah. They have so many advantages. They can have music that that's frightening. They can zoom in on close-ups and they can use lighting and they can have the the background lighting. What's the movie? Is it Felicia's Journey where you see the the fireplace playing out in the in the guy's eyes and you realize that he's evil and it looks like he has flames dancing in his eyes you know and right. they just have so many things they can do and they can shock you with the appearance you know the bad guy suddenly shows up or uh when you're not expecting it or um but what novels have over uh films might actually be a disadvantage for the bad guys because what novels have is the interior life of a character, which is great for a hero because you can be right with the hero and you can see what they're faced with and what their background is and all of that. But with a bad guy, it's almost like the more you know about what they're thinking, the more uh, mundane or identifiable or humane mm-hmm. it, it can become. And sometimes it's it's the mystery of it, of mm-hmm. the evil, which is which is the most effective and the most powerful because your imagination works to try to figure out the motive or to really wrestle with mm-hmm. with this person. But well that's a good segue to my first pick because okay. I part of that mystery that helps um bring a villain to life and flesh them out in a novel I think, you know, a, a component of the mystery is language and if the language can be um, incredibly stylistic mm-hmm. that can make um, the violence and make the the evil strangely mysterious. You mean the so, language of the dialogue of the words that come out of their mouth, or are you talking about the descriptions or the? Um, yeah, the sermon. Well, this particular. So my first pick is Judge Holden from <laughs> Blood Meridian. So you know, I'm and, laughing. Because I had written down predicting that I had written down Judge Holden from Blood Meridian, and then I just crossed it out and said, "This will be Mike's first pick." And so <laughs> I, I always let you pick first, so I knew I wouldn't get to talk about him. So, 
I definitely uh, saw this one coming. So Cormac McCarthy's classic Blood Meridian, which Harold Bloom actually called Judge Holden, quote, the most frightening figure in all of American literature, end quote. So, yeah, I mean, it, the, the novel, um, if people haven't read it or don't know about it, is loosely based on allegedly what, what had happened after uh, the U.S. Army in the 19th century. They, in between conflicts, they would gather and they become friends and they would go around in these packs and travel to different cities and some of them com- would commit petty crimes and there were these rumors that they had started um, robbing Native Indians and also in addition to robbing settlers. And with the Native Indians, they were murdering them and scalping them. And then they, they had established a black market for the scalps. Hmm. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a really horrific story that McCarthy is choosing as the backdrop. And so he follows this group of murderers and I think most of them are soldiers. Maybe some of them are people they, the soldiers meet along the way. And their leader is this huge guy named Judge Holden, and he has no hair. He sermonizes all the time. So this is part of the language I was talking about, like mm. his sermons. His yeah. sermons are so clear and so disturbing. Mm. It, it's just a great contrast to McCarthy's language. If any, If people haven't read McCarthy, his language can be a little hard to read sometimes and also mm-hmm. but then other times very poetic so i found uh, an excerpt where judge holden is talking he says um and, and gives a lot of his philosophy the judge smiled the men are born for games nothing else every child knows that play is nobler than work he knows, too, that the worth or merit of a game is not inherent in the game itself, but rather in the value of that which is put at hazard. Games of chance require a wager to have meaning at all. Games of sport involve the skill and strength of the opponents, and the humiliation of defeat and the pride of victory are in themselves sufficient stake because they inhere in the worth of the principles and define them. But trial of chance or trial of worth, all games aspire to the condition of war, for here that which is wagered swallows up game, player, all. Suppose two men at cards with nothing to wager save their lives. Who has not heard such a tale? A turn of a card, the whole universe for such a player has labored clanking to this moment, which will tell if he is to die at that man's hand or that man at his. What more certain validation of a man's worth could there be? So it goes on and on and on. And you can tell that McCarthy's, a bit of a master here. He he knows that parts of the sermon need to make sense, mm-hmm. but other parts of the sermon they just need to build. Yeah, and whether it builds to something that ultimately makes sense, sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. Like here in this speech, it ends with uh, "War is the truest form of divination; is the testing of one's will." War is the ultimate game because war is at last the forcing of the unity of existence. War is God. And then his henchman, uh, Brown, goes, Brown studied the judge. You're crazy, Holden. Crazy at last. That's what Brown says. And the judge smiled. Mm. So, I mean, he's an unforgettable character. 
and he's he's so haunting and there's this sort of suggestion that he might be something supernatural or or beyond you know something eternal or something something that lives forever as kind of a a dark side of humanity i guess yeah and the violence in the book they this gang uh rapes and murders but holden in particular has a has a penchant for raping and murdering children yeah and the violence is done in a very oblique way that you don't you, and he does this again in his book the road um the violence again is very much like you glimpse it and then you flee mm. it's described in memory because you couldn't describe it when you're actually seeing it mm. right so. okay well this takes me to my first pick which I'm going to go back. I said it was chronological. So I'm going back to the year 431 BC, and we can (laughs) see that there were unspeakable murders even then as well, and that it is often uh, children, the most vulnerable of, of the humans that make murderers so unspeakable. And in this case, it's even more uh, atrocious because it's a mother and her children. So I chose Medea mm, from the right. Euripides play. So basically, for people who aren't familiar with the the plot, I'll just barely, uh, barely, I'll just briefly give you the outline. She had left her. She was a barbarian. So this is a Greek play. She was a barbarian. She left her people, her barbarian people, in order to marry Jason, who was a Greek, and she saved him from a dragon. But nevertheless. Jason has decided to leave her to marry a Greek, a royal princess. And Medea goes crazy when this happens. And she goes on this rampage. She kills uh, the the new spouse, the princess, and also the father-in-law. She poisons them. And then she decides that's not enough. And up until that point, you kind of, you know, if I stop the story there... There are there's enough in the play to kind of suggest that maybe she has a point or she's she's really been wronged and there's a kind of anti barbarian sentiment that is distasteful in Greece and so you, you kind of feel like you're on her side a little bit that um you know she's been mistreated but then she decides she really needs to make him feel the pain. And so the the most she could do to affect him is to kill his children, which is also her children. And she thinks about it and she thinks, well, this is, this is going to be bad for me too. I'm going to feel this. I'm going to feel their loss. I'm going to feel their pain. And as a mother, I'm going to be really affected by this. But she decides that it's worth it. And it's just a chilling moment. And then the actual murder is horrible. They're killed with a knife, and you hear the sound of children screaming off stage. And it's just a primal, it's such a primal uh, thing that even now, when it happens once in a while, you know, there'll be a, a headline in the news about a, a mother who has killed her own children. And it's it's so counter to everything that we hold important and, and essential about life, about motherhood and caring for one's children. And it, to upend that is such a rupture in the fabric of what we understand humanity to be at its best. It's just 
an unforgettable tragedy and and horrendous to contemplate and to watch it on stage is a very uh shaking experience boy i mean it's yeah going back to what i said earlier it's the evil that's just impossible to understand yeah okay so what's your number two so my number two was, and I don't often pick genre fiction, but I, I picked Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, mm. which, which is the first in the Hannibal Lecter <laughs> trilogy, yeah. which, which I read when I was 18, um, and I loved it. It was um, they actually Michael Mann of Heat and Miami Vice fame made a film out of it called Manhunter, which was quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the novel is really fascinating. It's... Uh, you learn early on how the killer is choosing his victims. The killer um, murders entire families, and the the FBI asks Hannibal Lecter to help diagnose these crimes to try to catch the killer. Hmm. The killer is a is an or, is a fairly ordinary man who had a terrible childhood, and the backstory is handled nicely. I think whenever we hear of horrific crimes in real life, we're always kind of dissecting the childhood to see what went wrong. And I have to say more often than not, the signs are fairly similar. (laughs) So, and so red dragon, when I was 18, when I read this, it was, uh, you know, they, they have something called the psychopath triad. Actually it's late bed wedding pyromania. And then, cruelty to animals Mm. very often there's uh, physical and sexual abuse by a family member yeah so and for anyone who who didn't put this connection together hannibal lecter is the anthony hopkins character in the silence of the lambs oh right yeah that's the second that's That's the second book based on the second book and the reason why i bring that up is i i pulled a list i kind of started to develop this uh, idea about movie villains and literary villains. And maybe we can talk about the list after we get through all of our literary choices. But Hannibal Lecter is number one on the AFI f- list of film villains. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea of the only way to understand a psychopath is to, is to use a psychopath is, I mean, I'm not, it's hard to imagine it not having been used before as a trope, but I was so impressed by Silence of the Lambs. I think that was the first time I had seen it, seen yeah. that idea. Well, the the psychopath and the serial killer, those are really 20th century villains. I mean, that's kind of the paradigmatic uh, yeah. 20th century villains. I won't list them because you may have chosen some others, but you know, Hannibal Lecter certainly is squarely in that tradition and it yeah so my pick was actually the two francis dollarhide the killer and then hannibal lecter because it's an interesting contrast because hannibal lecter is erudite and um Mm. has some some of the trappings of someone upper class and francis dollarhide is clearly working class or middle class Mm. okay so i'm gonna zoom forward from medea and my next two are kind of contemporary uh, with one another a little bit. Um, I'm going a little bit out of order here. But the second one I'm going to take is Satan in John Milton's uh, <laughs> Paradise Lost. So in some ways, it's 
it's it's kind of funny that this is what the fourth choice <laughs> since uh satan uh you you might think that he would have been number one i mean the the great thing about satan in paradise lost the great thing that he's come to stand for in literature is it's this classic example of the bad guy running away with the narrative and where he's so much more compelling than anybody else in Paradise Lost that he becomes kind of the hero. And so he's basically like a politician. You know, he's always talking his way into things. And you could say that he's selling the the reader on things, too. He's He's justifying his position. He's complaining, he's explaining, he's he turns himself into somebody that you almost come to admire, but he also is always ringed with evil, and you don't forget that either. You know, Milton was very uh, politically involved himself. He was Oliver Cromwell's secretary, and so he knows a lot about political speeches. And that's really what Satan is doing. He's giving these speeches. He gives orders to his second in command, Beelzebub, and he calls for the soldiers, you know, his angels, his his fellow fallen angels, to to rouse them into action. And it's really a a, a great use of words in order to show somebody who's getting what they want. He's almost like a a cult leader or something. He uses words to get his army back. He gets out of hell with words. He gets to earth through there. Then he gets Eve's attention, and he talks her into the the fatal event of the fall all through his words. I pulled a a quote here, mm-hmm. and this is when he's he's been kicked out of heaven. And he says, Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I still be the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater? Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence, here we may reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. It it kind of makes you wonder, yeah, God, I mean, God can often be unforgiving, even though he's all, all powerful, he's all loving, and he's all good, and he's full of forgiveness. But at the same time, you know, Eve ate an apple and humanity paid the consequences. It was a, it was, <laughs> there, there wasn't really a second chance there. And Satan is kind of playing that out. He, he's kicked out of heaven and he's, he's saying, well, I'm going to have to make the best of it. And that's kind of what humans had to do after the fall. And he's espousing these qualities of freedom and individualism and autonomy. And he's saying, well, rather than just go up, you know, in heaven and serve the one who got to be greater than all of us, I'll be down here, but at least I'll have my own kingdom. And you kind of think, well, that's that's kind of courageous. It's kind of plucky. You know, maybe that's how I would respond if I were in that situation. You, you make the best of it. 
those are all kind of good qualities. He's sympathetic. And then you see when he's looking at Adam and Eve and they're together and they're happy in the garden. And he's saying, why do they get such bliss while I was thrust into hell where I can't have joy or love or anything other than torment? And and you can see why he would want to go tempt Eve. And uh, you think, well, maybe if I was in Satan's shoes, I would want to lash out as well. And so it's this it's this interesting thing. It's much more human than a kind of evil force, uh, an unmitigated evil power. You can almost see Satan's side of things. Yeah, I mean, as, as a kid, the, the idea of an angel being kicked out of heaven and then becoming God's rival is just, it's, it's a great story. Yeah. I mean, I love that story. Uh, you know, I don't think I, I probably took the wrong message in Catholic school <laughs> from that story. I think the nuns would have been horrified to hear my take on that. But yeah, I have heard, and I, I, I read Paradise Lost year, years ago, um, and I've heard people confirm this, is that Satan, the Satan scenes are just better. Yeah. It's like um, Milton had so much he wanted to say about Satan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are so, he's so compelling. And he says things like, at one point he says, myself am hell, which mm -hmm. is, you know, it's such a great line. And you wonder, is he so evil that he embodies hell? Or is it that his self he just can't change. He's flawed. He's got a selfishness that he can't get beyond. And so his self is like a prison. And it's it's the hell that he has to live with is he's got this ambition and, you know, this ego that he can never avoid. And it, it feels much more like a, a human character than a, a grand spiritual force. Yeah, and at the same time, he's he's incredibly powerful. You know, you don't want to make your villains um, too conflicted that they can't just maim and kill. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. they can't be. Uh, they can't be somebody. Yeah, they can't be Hamlet. <laughs> right. Okay. So, who's your number three? So, my third pick was the Collector by John Fowles, the the main character in it, uh, Frederick Klieg, the who abducts a young art student and uh, keeps her uh, hostage in, 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 a, in an effort to make her fall in love with him. And I, you know, I, I read um, Foles's other novel, The Magus, because of the recommendation from Vu Tran. Right. And I love The Magus so much. I, I, I just picked up The Collector and I was bracing myself for it not to be as good, but it, it in many ways it was even better. Mm. Wow. Um, so I, I don't want to I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but um, he before he abducts this art student, he's a collector of butterflies and other insects, and he keeps them. Uh, he kills them and he preserves mm -hmm. them in formaldehyde. And so um, I think the the thing about this book is, Fowles really has us feeling like. Miranda, the art student, is going to find a way out. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the abductor, Frederick Klieg, it's not clear that he's going to kill her. Mm -hmm. And that balance is handled exceptionally well in a way that, 
I'm not going to say you're, you're sympathetic with Klee because he's, he's had a hard life, you know, again, with the background and your childhood and he was adopted and, um, his, his adopted parents died. And, but, you know, it's not sympathy, but it's something like, um, you want, uh, Miranda to be safe, but you're not sure how, and you're not sure if Klee has to be punished or not. Mm. So there's all this, there are all these things like where, it's almost like you're put in the mindset of someone who's trying to negotiate for their life. Yeah. Who's the narrator? Is the narrator a third person or is it uh, the art student? Oh, so this is, this is the great thing about it. So it, the first half is Klieg's perspective where he falls in love, where he thinks he falls in love with the art student and he abducts her. And then he, you know, buys her clothes and tries to befriend her. And then the second half is a journal that the art student kept. Mm. But there, there's, there are moments like this, like she tries to escape numerous times, but he's a big guy and he kept, he stops her and one time and she, you know, insults him and she goes, Yes, he had more dignity than I did then, and I felt small, mean, always sneering at him, jabbing him, hating him, and showing it. It was funny. We sat in silence facing each other, and I had a feeling I'd once or twice, I'd had once or twice before of the most peculiar closeness to him, not love or attraction or sympathy in any way, but linked destiny like being shipwrecked on an island raft together in every way, not wanting to be together, but together. So yeah. and, and people have analyzed this in the context of Shakespeare's Tempest. Mm. In in the book, he even Miranda calls him uh, my. I think he calls him my Caliban. Yeah, yeah. So, and Miranda, that's yeah, that's the yeah. daughter of Prospero. Yeah. Ah, so. oh, sounds like a book that should go on my list. You really can't put it down. Oh, it's, yeah. Because you want her to be released. Yeah, and, and, and the after it's over, it's one of those books where you're just kind of stunned. Yeah. <laughs> you, I, I think it was like hard to pick up another book after it. I was just... Wow. I, and it was his first novel. Ah. So. And so you want him to let her go. You, you don't want the police to crash down the doors and and grab him and put him in jail or you don't want it you don't want her to shoot him or something like that well you i want, think he, uh you want him to have a happy ending but you definitely want her to be safe well you you go back and forth mm. sometimes you want right. the police to break down the door but then he, he files cleverly lets it be known that they'll never find her which is a just a horrific moment mm. I forget the exact details, but they'll never find her. Um, uh, and then you, later you find out that um, he's done stuff where she knows he, he can, he, he really can't let her go unless she, you know, can convince him um, sexually. Hmm. And there's, so there's, there's the, the, the level of bargaining and the back and forth is, is almost unbearable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I really recommend it. Okay, that's a good pick. Okay, so for my number three, I'm moving forward, but I'm inching forward through the centuries. I'm staying <laughs> basically at the same time period. I'm going to go with Shakespeare, 
and I'm going to take Iago. Oh, yeah. That's on my list. Yeah, I had to kind of, you know, there's so many good Shakespeare villains, so I sort of had to limit myself to one. I think he's my favorite. One of the reasons why he stands out for so many people is because Shakespeare really subtracts his motive. You know, he, he almost has no motive or the motive is just barely hinted at. And it's interesting because Shakespeare, like with as with so many Shakespeare plays, he took the rough plot from another story, and this was an Italian story. And in the Italian story, Iago is very clearly in love with Desdemona. And so his, you know, he wants to destroy the Othello figure uh, just because he can't have Desdemona and he's willing to destroy Desdemona as well. But Shakespeare kind of subtracts that out. And it it's interesting that he did because he almost seemed to think that, you know, having a character who was manipulative almost for no reason is kind of more interesting than somebody who was something as mundane as just felt like a jilted lover. But he... He, uh, Iago says, I hate the more. And it's just what he's willing to do based on this hate that isn't really attached to anything in the play. There's some suggestion that maybe he was passed over for a promotion and that that might have been part of it. But he really does just come across as somebody who he's kind of got the Eddie Haskell thing going where he's he can he can change speeds and he can be polite and everybody believes him you know they think Othello thinks he's you know the one honest person that he can trust and and instead we the audience know that he's uh, completely duplicitous and he's driving Othello toward uh madness and murder and it's very fun to watch it's kind of interesting it's not it's horrible and the ending is horrible and it's it can be staged in such a way that it is very difficult to watch and it's it's difficult to watch Othello this great man sort of uh start to lose his grip on things but it also is just a it's it's not horrible in the way that Silence of the Lambs might be well I guess that's a bad example but horrible in the way that say the Halloween movies might be horrible where you're you're just watching mm -hmm. a a slaughterhouse. It's horrible in the, it's it's fun in the sense of Iago, you almost root for him in a way that he, he's so clever at getting what he wants, that he's very charming. And he, again, kind of steals the scene, similar to the way Satan did in Paradise Lost. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the, the play could have almost been called Iago instead of Othello. Yeah. So here's a, a quote from an author who played him not long ago. And mm -hmm. I, I always, I'm sorry, an author, an actor who played him not long ago. And I, I always like hearing from actors when they play bad guys and they talk about how they didn't think he was really that bad or they found the motivation <laughs> and they sort of sided with the character because it seems like that's probably what made the performance so good is that they they didn't hate the character, but they inhabited the character. And he said, uh, quote, there are a million theories to Iago's motivations, but I believed that Iago was once a good soldier, a great man's man to have around, a bit of a laugh, who feels betrayed, gets jealous of his friend, wants to mess it up for him, enjoys causing him pain, 
makes a choice to channel all his creative energy into the destruction of this human being and becomes completely addicted to the power he wields over him. I didn't want to play him as initially malevolent. He's not the devil. He's you or me feeling jealous and not being able to control our feelings. Yeah. I thought that was a good summary, and it's part of what makes it so so much fun, but also it kind of rings true in a way. You can see a lot of human nature in Iago as well that you might not in some uh, psychopathic serial killers. Yeah. For my next pick, I, I picked uh, Alex from A Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah. I was um, thinking about him, and then I kind of forgot. So I try to keep it separate. I mean, I read it years ago, but I took a look at it again. Um, mm -hmm. I try to keep it separate from the movie because the movie is is so iconic now, and everyone you know has these images of him yep. sit, sitting in a milk bar and the eyelashes and you know the the, the horrible rape gang rape scene. And, yeah, the, um, was it singing in the rain that's playing? Yeah. And the yeah, and the the eyelids open and wasn't Clockwork Orange rated X? It it actually it was I don't know what it was rated, and... but it was banned because there was a copycat uh, gang rape in England. It's banned in England, and it can't be shown it in a group more than five people, yeah. even privately. I think that's or something like that. Three people you can't show it privately even. Ugh. So and Stanley Stanley Kubrick pulled it from from some places. Ugh. So it's it's a movie that I um, I'm not sure I'll ever see again, and I, I I don't recommend the movie because it's so disturbing the images you see. Yeah. But it, it, here's an example of of a, the book perhaps being more human. Yeah. The movie is not human to me. Yeah. <laughs> but reading yeah. the book, you can take it, you can take parts of it, you can do what you want, but the movie is like that scene where he's indoctrinated with his eyelids held open. Yeah. You know, you can't forget those images that you see. Yep. And the the book is, it's got violent images, but it's nowhere near as disturbing yeah. as the movie. I mean, the movie just goes all out. It It's really, uh, really, <laughs> I mean, it, it is one of the hardest movies to watch I've ever seen, I think. Yeah, I, I I rented it and ordered Chinese food. I was 15 years old and just expecting like a entertaining film. Yeah. And I think I could barely eat. <laughs> it was like a Saturday afternoon. I was 15 years old. I just had rented the movie. And, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I went, I, I sat through it just to say I had done it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I was, it was hard to even listen to that Beethoven. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, symphony afterward i forget what they what they played but yeah yeah and the book is the book is also it kind of invents a language too the book is very um the book is worth reading i think i mean i enjoyed it uh but yeah it is hard to separate the book from the film at this point and malcolm mcdowell that yeah that image of him with that hat and it's uh yeah <laughs> it's it's very i'm sure that's on my list um yeah of, i mean like uh, the literary villains in the in the movies like the book has here's a quote from clock garn she has an excerpt 
it's not only more human, but it's a little more philosophical. I mean, they can talk about how whether it's is it worse to be indoctrinated to be good, you know, versus indoctrinated to be evil, mm-hmm. you know. But in the film, it's it's gloss and it's it's just image. But in the book, there are lines like this. Um, a perverse nature can be stimulated by anything. Any book can be used as a pornographic instrument, even a great work of literature, if the mind that so uses it is off balance. I once found a small boy masturbating in the presence of a Victorian steel engraving in a family Bible. Mm. It's, I mean, the the book yeah. is so good. Uh, it is number 12 on the list of movie villains. Uh, Alex DeLarge. Yeah. Okay. Another good book. That was your number four? Yeah. So for my number four, I'm going to jump to the 19th century. And mm-hmm. I wanted to take a Dickensian villain. And I thought about some other villains from other novels around that time, but then I thought I would just go with one right from Dickens. So I chose uh, Uriah Heep. <laughs> who's kind of the smarmy, yeah, the smarmy, greedy figure in David Copperfield. And he's he's an example. He might be the, the one that we have on here who's not kind of a, a serial killer or a, a horrible murderer or, a, a, I guess, literally the devil. He's great for the way the commentary he has on society, which I'm sure is not a surprise to anybody who's familiar even a little bit with Dickens, that he's kind of showing the hypocrisy that society can have and the way that someone who flatters people can get ahead, but the way that the flattery can make us vulnerable to a person's manipulation and greed and the way that basically when we're flattered, we let our guard down and then mm-hmm. people can come in and take what they want. And Uriah Heep is really like that. But one of the things I like about Uriah Heep, I mean, Dickens, it's like he's he's just, uh, the way he can crank out, you know, names, Uriah Heep is just a, a great name for a villain. It sounds like a, a stain on your pants, you know, on your trousers. <laughs> that you <laughs> Something that stains your trousers. He, his dialogue where he's always talking about how humble he is and, and meanwhile, he's scheming and everything. But he talks about how, you know, when he was in school, he learned how he got to know what humbleness did. He took to it. I ate humble pie with an appetite. I stopped at the humble point of my learning and says, I hard, hard. When you offered to teach me Latin, I knew better. People like to be above you, says father. Keep yourself down. I am very humble to the present moment, Master Copperfield, but I've got a little power. And he's sort of, Everything about him tries to, he's just so uh, unctuous. You know, the 19th century, we talked about villains being cartoony, and there's there's such a kind of black and white uh, thing with, with villains in the 19th century. I think of the, the woman being tied to the train tracks and the, <laughs> right. the twirling mustaches of the villain and... There's something kind of fun about that kind of a bad guy. I don't I don't know that it's it's better and it's probably not that they're a little bit uh kind of comical and a little larger than life but in a almost a childlike way, but it's the kind of villain I enjoyed when I was a kid and 
Dickens seems to, you know, excel at giving us figures like that. And uh, I was remembering that Robert Caro likened not only uh, Nixon, but Lyndon Johnson as a, a Uriah Heep. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Willing so. to say one thing and then they have such ambition yeah. to just take things and... Uh, and Dickens is also so good at description, physical description, and he he describes Uriah Heep as high-shouldered and bony, dressed in decent black with a white wisp of a neckcloth buttoned up to the throat, and had a long, lank, skeleton hand, which particularly attracted my attention. And then David Copperfield shakes his hand, and he says... Uh, uh, but, oh, what a clammy hand his was, as ghostly to the touch as to the sight. I rubbed mine afterwards to warm it and to rub his off. <laughs> <laughs> and you just immediately, and he's got this, he's like uh, Judge Holden. He has hardly any eyebrows. He has no eyelashes. He does have hair, but it's red and uh, kind of a pale face. And although his skin is described as cadaverous with a tinge of red, He's an immediately unpalatable figure for us to see. So who do you have for your final pick? So I I had to go with uh, a children's book villain because there's so many. Yep. And um, I went with the White Witch. Oh. From uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. You know, she, she can turn anyone she wants into a statue. Really powerful. She and the the the, the way um, she first comes to the reader on that sled, mm. um, yep. offering chocolates and yep, and the, the setting that you know there there never is spring, there never is summer. Yeah, but there's no Christmas. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's the that's the the perfect touch. Because you yeah. think you could almost see C.S. Lewis thinking, well, you know, kids do like winter for certain things. They like Christmas. But to, to have winter without Christmas just feels like about as evil as it can be for a kid. This is a little bit of the category. Uh, I'm sure there, there are many that fall into this as this kind of like sexy evil villain. I mean, in comic mm -hmm. books, this happens all the time where yeah. there's like a vol voluptuous evil villain and... And if I if I knew more genre fiction, I probably would would have uh, uh, you know someone else in mind. I mean, I'm trying to. I never read the book, the the girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh, but right. Yep. I know that there there's some sultry relationships in that, and yeah, yep. But yeah, she's very uh, she's very powerful and attractive, and I, she's described. I mean, I'm I know in the cartoons and everything, she's has sort of this tall, regal, high cheekbone kind of thing. But I think she is described as beautiful in the book, right? She's not an old hag. She's like a... Yeah. You know, she's beautiful and she's got the Turkish delight that uh, Edmund can't stop, can't resist. And that's a good one. It's She's very difficult to read for a kid. It's The book is so inviting and you're so with the kids as they are exploring the house, but then when they get to uh, when they get into the world of the White Witch, it, it can be very frightening. Really, an un unmistakable villain. Okay, so I'm going to take my last one. I thought you might take this one, actually. <laughs> I am going to take so 
we're kind of I'm moving now into the 20th century and I'm glad we've talked so much about serial killers because I felt bad about not taking a, a serial killer as my 20th century representative just because it's it's such a a common type of villain and so uh, almost iconic I guess but I did want to take there's another type of of villain in the 20th century that I also wanted to take. And I, I found this one to be a little more powerful, which was uh, Big Brother from George Orwell's 1984. Uh-huh. And just the, yeah, just the whole, I mean, what can be more evil than in the 20th century than Hitler and Stalin and Mao and all of the the leaders who you know, caused world wars and caused the Holocaust and all of these wide-scale, inhumane atrocities. And Big Brother is this great example of, in literature, of the kind of symbol that a party will put forward. And what's so creepy about him is that it's not even clear if it was a real person or if it was just invented by the party, but it it's come to represent the quote is uh, the guise in which the party chooses to exhibit itself to the world. And there's this cult of personality around Big Brother, and he's portrayed in portraits and, and posters and things like that as this handsome man in his mid-40s. But he really is representing this this whole totalitarian state that takes someone like the hero Winston Smith and tries to kind of grind him up and and brainwash him and take every independent thought that he has and turn it into love for Big Brother. I mean, that, I think that this is also an example of um, originality in in a villain. I mean, I I, I don't think you know he that was written in 1948 and yeah. uh, something like that today we we wouldn't find that scary i mean we we live in a we live in that kind of culture yeah. all the time but yeah. back in 48 i mean to have to have come up with that is yep. is incredible it was almost like he saw it you know as this yeah. sort of visionary uh just by seeing what was happening and imagining where it would go and then it kind of did the passage I wanted to call out, the part where Winston Smith is arrested, uh, the man repeats that Big Brother will never die, and Smith asks if Big Brother exists, because he's read this book where it says no one's ever seen Big Brother, and and he probably won't die, and he's, he's infallible and all-powerful. And so Smith says, does Big Brother exist? And O'Brien describes him as the embodiment of the party and says he will exist as long as the party exists. And then Winston Smith says, does Big Brother exist the same way I do? And O'Brien says, you do not exist. (laughs) (laughs) And it's this feeling of wanting to know is this person that everyone is worshiping and everyone, you know, with these huge pictures everywhere. And is that an actual human being or is this something that, you know, some group of people is putting forward for us to pretend like he's this human being and and a, a better human being than us. And instead, you know, they say, well, you're not human. You're, you're a non-human now. You're, you're an unperson because, we're going to eliminate 
your ability to think thoughts like this. It's such a such a great villain, such a great idea for a character, for what a character has to go through. And it's so vivid when you read it that uh, I uh, I wanted to to give this type of a villain a little bit of a a say here on our list. Yeah, no, I I almost put Hal on the list. Yeah, that was another one, which I haven't read the book, but I haven't but read it either. For yeah. movie villains, yeah, that is such a good uh, yeah. movie villain, and uh, it's interesting. You had a couple of Kubrick, then you had. Uh, yeah, Clockwork Orange and Hal. Um, I love that scene when the two um, humans crawl into the outer pod, so that Hal can't hear them talking. Yeah. When, once they realize that Hal is, <laughs> you know, onto them. <laughs> yeah, and you know where Hal got its name? No, I don't. So it's the letters uh, IBM, but one letter before. <laughs> <laughs> The one that I had prepared that I was going to take, if you had taken any of my picks, was uh-huh. uh, Annie Wilkes from Misery. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, which was a, a villain, another uh, unforgettable movie villain, but also a, a great one in the Stephen King book about this woman who the author's in a crash and the woman comes and rescues him. But then it turns out that she's a nurse who's been killing all these children and he's gradually sort of finds it out and the unforgettable moment where he's trying to he keeps trying to escape and she figures out that he's been moving around the house and stuff and then he tries to escape and she smashes his ankles so that he's Mm. uh breaks his legs so that he's unable to escape and the thing that i found so interesting about that about her as a literary villain in some ways she kind of fits in with all the things that we've been talking about before the 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 psychopath and the the serial killer and the the nurse who goes after children kind of like the mother that like Medea or Judge Holden but what i found so interesting is that the way that Stephen King has described her as being basically the embodiment of his addictions and that it was for him she was cocaine and, um, you know, that, that he couldn't escape cocaine. You know, he was writing it kind of as he was trying to get out from under this addiction to cocaine that he had developed in the 80s. And, you know, the way that, like, reading it with that in mind is really interesting to think about the way that an author like Stephen King can kind of bear his soul about what it's like to be addicted to cocaine without talking about cocaine, but to put it in this person that keeps the writer in his bed and is someone who is supposed you know pretends to be taking care of you but is secretly preventing you from doing anything you want to do you're actually in her prison yeah no that that i I mean i've only seen the movie but it's uh again that's that that's like in the collector where you're just kind of praying for the escape and wondering if this is made up couldn't the the author give us the satisfaction of an escape. Yeah. So so let me just tick through the. I'm going to give you. So we now have the top ten literary villains that we chose. I'm going to give you the top ten movie villains from this <laughs> list, and 
I, I have to say, I think the movie villains are more vivid and prominent in in our our cultural mind. Mm-hmm. So I just I don't know that literary villains can, can really compare. So number one, Doctor Hannibal Lecter. Number two, Norman Bates from Psycho. Mm. Number three, Darth Vader. Number four, the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz. Number five, Nurse Ratched from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I thought about taking her as well for our literary villains. Number six, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. Number seven, Alex Forrest, who is the Glenn Close character in Fatal Attraction. Number eight, Phyllis Dietrichson, who is the Barbara Stanwyck character in Double Indemnity. Number nine is Regan McNeil as possessed by Satan in the Linda Blair character in The Exorcist. And number 10 is the evil queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And 11 is Michael Corleone. 12 is Alex DeLarge. We talked about from A Clockwork Orange. 13 is Michael Hal. Corleone? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> really? Well, he kills, you know, he has Fredo killed. I think that's his low point is... Uh, because it, it specifically says The Godfather Part 2. But yeah, I know. I'm kind of, that's kind of uh, I kind I'm, of view I'm him as I'm squarely cheering yeah. for him throughout. <laughs> and even when he kills Fredo, I say, well, Fredo almost got him shot. Yeah. So, and, uh, and then so in, be it. others, you know, then Alex DeLarge and Clockwork Orange and Hal is number 13. The Alien is 14. Mm-hmm. Um Terminator is 22. Annie Wilkes, I mentioned, is 17. Gordon about, Gecko is 24. Um, what about Roy Batty from Blade Runner? No? Um, not in the top 50. Really? In terms of sermonizing, you know, I've, I've talked about this already. His, he, he has one of the best movie sermons by a villain. Yeah. So And... Uh, I go through the list, and if if I were going to, you know, if anything was going to keep me up at night, mm-hmm. I have to be honest that it it is much more likely to be one of those movie villains than it would be Uriah Heep, mm. for example, you know, or John Milton's Satan. Mm. I'll tell you, there's a scene in, but the, the I agree with you except for certain scenes, maybe not villains, but the scenes in books. Mm. Um, there's a scene in the road where the dad and the son come across a house that's seemingly abandoned, and there's nothing there, but there's a, a trap door in the kitchen, and it's padlocked. And the, the, the dad goes... There's a reason why it's padlocked. We we have to open it. We have to see what it is. The boy is saying like, "Oh, I'm scared. Let's not go. Let's not go." And the dad's like, "Let me open it." And this is the this is the scene. So that way, people can have this image with them as they try to go to sleep. Um, he started down the rough wooden steps. This is the dad. He ducked his head and then flicked the lighter and swung the flame out over the darkness like an offering, coldness and damp an ungodly stench. His son clutched at his coat. He could see part of the stone wall, clay floor, an old mattress darkly stained. He crouched and stepped down again and held out the light, huddled against the back wall were naked people, 
male and female, all trying to hide, shielding their hands with their their faces with their hands. On the mattress lay a man with his legs gone to the hip and the stumps of them blackened and burnt. The smell was hideous. Jesus, he whispered. Then one by one they turned and blinked in the pitiful light. Help us, they whispered. Please help us. Christ, he said. Oh, Christ. And he and the boy run back up the stairs, push the people down the stairs, and then they lock the padlock again. Hmm. So, I mean, I don't know who the villain is there. I mean, it's the villain is, are the people who put them, these these people who are being used as food. You know, it's a post-apocalyptic novel. Yeah. In, in that cellar. But the villains, it's interesting. The villains aren't scary when you meet them. The villains are scary when you hear what they've done. You know, mm-hmm. and, that, and that could only be done in a book. Yeah. It's hard to... It's hard to show that in a novel and yeah, to have you, off stage. Yeah, and to think like, okay, this is what the villains did. You know, you, you kind of have to show the villains doing it, or mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's one advantage in in terms of like a haunting villain uh, of of a book. Yeah, and you know, yeah. maybe I'm giving uh, movies too much credit because the other thing that books can do really well is they can show you the state of mind of the person who's being stalked or haunted or or attacked or endangered and that can be as powerful as anything in the movies you know when you when you see the girl who's you're hoping she's going to be okay but you can see that she's being manipulated into a situation and you know that something bad is going to happen to her it's really you know or uh, i said a girl it could be a boy or a man or anything but like it's it's so difficult to watch that play out and to know that there's this uh, person out there who won't give up or who is coming at the protagonist. Th- those things can be very powerful in literature as well. Yeah. So honorable mentions, I had uh, Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov. I-, I wanted to kind of take a good bad guy, the one <laughs> somebody we're really rooting for, like Humbert Humbert or... Or mm-hmm. Walter White from Breaking Bad, or Heathcliff, you know, the glamorous, charismatic bad guys. Uh, Mickey Sabbath in Sabbath Theater, which is such a low-life narrator, but kind of a masterful job by Philip Roth to have this bad guy narrator. And then all the fantasy books, a lot of these are sort of blurred for me with movies, but Sauron from The Lord of the Rings and Voldemort mm-hmm. from Harry Potter. Uh, Darth yeah. Vader and the Star Wars villains, James Bond villains, I've mm. considered taking. I thought those were interesting. Moriarty was one that came up on a lot of lists with a Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> uh, which I just viewed as every hero needs a foil. You know, at some point you have to make your hero, give your hero someone to to really wrestle with in the bad yeah. guy. Then there were pirate villains like Captain Hook and Long John Silver, uh, Inspector Javert comes up on a lot of lists and uh grendel is a good villain beowulf's villain or grendel's mother and what else bill sykes from oliver twist oh and the the villain i really wanted to take from shakespeare other than iago was lady macbeth but i thought she was a little too similar from iago that she was interesting because she was manipulating someone else or encouraging someone else to do uh to behave at their worst. 
Yeah, on my on my uh, honorable mention list, I had uh, Moby Dick. Ah. Um, I had Kurtz <laughs> from Heart of Darkness, yep. and I had M- Milo Minderbinder oh, from Catch Twenty yeah. Two. Yeah, one who um, you know the Germans pay him, and he allows them to bomb his own base. Hmm. <laughs> so, because I was trying yep. to come up with a comic, uh, <laughs> a, a comic villain. Um, yeah. Maybe the James Bond villains are kind of comic, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it might, you know, Milo Minderbinder reminds me of the way I used to, I was a little obsessed with Benedict Arnold because he was both, <laughs> you know, a joke. Yep. Um, but then also, strangely, it stayed with me because this idea of someone committing treason was so foreign to me, mm-hmm. so weird to me. It had this weight um, and so I don't know when I was reading catch 22, I, I kept thinking of Benedict Arnold. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was like this strange balance of it's, it's, it's just absurd, but also like, how could it happen? And that mystery mystery made it seem interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, it is a, an interesting uh, treason. You're right. Treason is one of those things where for so many of us, it's never a possibility yeah it's not the sort of situation like like murder everybody you know whenever you're around people murder would be a possibility it's something that could happen at any time basically but treason it's a special kind of situation that you'd have to be in to be able to to even carry it out and it is kind of an interesting way of of thinking about, well, what are your loyalties? And I've always liked, you know, this by the John Le Carre and the, the spy stories where it becomes like, if you believe in the ideals of another country, is it really so bad to sell out your own country? Did we think that yeah. Russians were bad people if they wanted to defect to America or did we think they were heroes? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a, uh... You know, a, a subcategory of a literary villain is a, is kind of a villainous project that gets abandoned by a character. Yeah. You know, the, the, the intent is there at the start, but then it gets abandoned. I mean, I'm thinking of um, a film, actually, uh, the, <laughs> the recent Marion Cotillard film, Allied, mm. by Robert Zemeckis, which people haven't seen. I, I, I highly recommend the the villainy there is is, is quite well developed okay well we have plenty of books to read and plenty of movies to watch let's leave things there mike thanks again for joining me on the history of literature thanks jack okay there we go that's gonna do it for this episode of the history of literature my thanks to mike palindrome for joining me boy we had some great picks, but I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Such a large topic. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find us at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Support the show at patreon.com slash literature. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash literature. Did we miss any of your favorites? Let us know at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com or on Twitter at writerjack that's j-a-c-k-e wilson author at gmail.com and writerjack j-a-c-k-e 
I'm Jack Wilson, hoping you have only heroes in your life and very few villains, or at least not any whom you cannot vanquish. Vanquish your villains. It's what we're all trying to do. It's our purpose in life. That and loving our friends and family and neighbors. Vanquish villains and let love rule. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.